I want to, if you slipped in late today and maybe, uh, you know, we had a meeting earlier and you got kicked out and you got here late, you might have missed the opening of our service. We uh, celebrated our Peru uh, team getting back from Peru. We're celebrating them getting back, but we're really celebrating what, they, what God accomplished through them uh, uh, over the past uh, week that they were there. Uh, God did amazing things. They were able to minister to uh, 1,250 people during uh, that week, doing things like evangelism, medical checkups, dental cleanings, and they even led 69 people to the Lord on this trip. Like individual conversations, talking with people one-on-one, just leading them into a personal relationship with Jesus. So I don't know. I just, I, I wonder what you think. Is it worth the expense and the time and the energy we put into it for that? I'd say. I'd say. Uh, what if I told you that there was a more fertile ground in the world for the gospel to take root than the soils of Peru? Um, I, I think there's a mission field that you have access to that is way more productive than going to a foreign country. As all, all mission fields are, there's no guarantee of success. Even Jesus, as he's talking about, you know, the, so, the soil and the seeds going on the soil, he really gives us like 25% are going to hit dirt that pays, pays out. Uh, when you preach the gospel, it's really not, not everybody's going to respond. He says one out of four soils will hear it. But still, there's a mission field that is kind of crazy with the rate of return for the gospel that it gives us and, and each one of us has access to. Um, Given that this is the final week of the family math series, I bet you're not surprised to hear that we're talking today about the mission field of your family. Your family. And just to demonstrate how powerful an influence a Christian family can be in the lives of kids, I'm curious if you just uh, play along for a moment. Raise your hand if, raise your hand if uh, you came to Christ, you accepted faith in Christ uh, when you were in the midst of a Christian family, like your parents uh, were Christians or like you were in a Christian family raised. Just put, hold them high, hold them high. There's nothing to be ashamed about. Some of you are like, oh, that's me. I don't want people to see me. Hold on, keep up, keep up, keep up. My goodness, you're like... I'm a church rat. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, is, you looked around like, isn't that crazy cool? I, I'm encouraged for those of you who didn't raise your hand because it's awesome that uh, you're the first in your family to come to Christ, possibly, and to change the tra- trajectory of your family. But uh, I'm not aware of a mission field with that rate of success of evangelism. This ought to encourage us because ever since the beginning of time, since the beginning of humanity, God's words over us were words of family math to this point. If you don't believe me, check this out, what God says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God says this, God blessed them, God said to them, be fruitful, say it with me, and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. God's mission is Multiplication. To be fruitful and multiply means to prosper and increase, to reproduce and endure. And put in the context of our series on family math, you're coming into the fourth and last week on our family month series. Has this been a good, good month for y'all? You've been shaping your family, shaping your souls a little bit? It, uh, okay, we'll get back to Romans in two weeks. Just hang on. I know you're itching to go to Romans 8. Uh, but in the context of this series, we might say multiplying is how you double your life. It's how you double your life. And it's one of the foremost ways that God gives us to double our lives is literally to have children and raise them up in your families for the sake of the gospel. That's kind of what we're looking at when we think of the, the, the equation of multiplication, to have children and raise them in the gospel. I want to say this right from the beginning of our message today because um, I want to be sensitive to this. On a regular basis, on that Connect card that we have you fill out every week, we get 
prayer requests from couples, not just one or two or three or four, but, but many, who ask us to pray for their, their marriage because they're struggling with infertility. I think I know the pain of hearing a message, you know, blaring a hope across the families that exist in an auditorium at the same time feeling like maybe that blessing is not for you. And I, I want to be sensitive to you if you're in the room here today and this is just something that's on your heart that you desire to have, but it's just not working. I think in one sense, there's a, there's a sense of comfort to know that when God said, be fruitful and multiply, he wasn't actually looking at Adam and Eve. He was talking to the whole of humanity, that humanity's goal as a, as a group project is to fill the earth and subdue it. That his plan for humanity might be that we increase and have dominion over the world. This is a group project. I believe if you're here today and you're single or you're married and you're not sure what you and your spouse want to do with having your own kids, or you're here and you want kids but it's just not working, I want you to hear from the outset that God knows and graciously there are many ways you can multiply your life apart from your own biology. And you'll hear some of those applications along the way today, but I also want to give you a warning that the main applications of this message today will stem from multiplication that happens within the context of a family unit when they have kids. A long time ago, the church, the Christian church taught that to multiply, a husband and a wife should have a specific number of kids. Does anybody know the number of kids that a, uh, the church taught was the right number to have? Some of you are like, wait, what? The church taught something like that? That's crazy. Anyone on a hazard guess? Seven, good, good gracious. Twelve is the right answer. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. It's not actually the right answer. Uh, four. This is what the church for centuries taught to parishioners. You have to have four kids if you're going to be fruitful and multiply. Does that sound a little legalistic? Yeah, church folk, we're good at putting rules on things that don't exist in the Bible. Here's what the thinking was, okay? Some of you are like, check, thank you. At least it wasn't seven. Um, but the thinking was, if you just have one kid, you are failing miserably in life because you and your wife will die and you will only leave one offspring you have subtracted from the number of people in the world. It's a net loss. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I wish I was joking. This is what the church actually taught. Uh, if you had two kids and you and your spouse died, then you were just replacing yourself. If you had three kids, you were just adding. To actually multiply required you double yourself. So you had to have a family of six. Family of six, Yeah. Go to a restaurant today and get a, a table for six. That's annoying, right? <laughs> Find a van for six. It's just, it's a mess. And you wonder, is that biblical? Like, should the church be saying something like that? And I, I think if you have this question in your mind, you're thinking about it rightly. We can easily evaluate this idea. I just simply ask the question, um, what did that mean for single people? whom the Bible looks incredibly favorably upon, who will not have children? And what does it mean for those married couples who cannot conceive children for various reasons? Such a rule, such a teaching leaves them out of the blessing of God and it's not consistent with the whole counsel of God's word. And there's actually an even better argument against it. It's found in Genesis chapter 22 in a really peculiar story. I want you to hold on to your emotions this morning because I'm going to mess with them a little bit. There's a biblical argument that if you just look at the man who fathered the nation of Israel, do you know what his name was? It, was? it was Abraham. Father, Abraham. If you grew up in church, you remember his theme song. 
Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. So let's all praise the... Okay, you just outed yourself that you're a church rap. That's good. Here's the irony of that song. Uh, It's really not true. Father Abraham had a couple of sons. And for the longest times, he was the father of nobody. A moment when we jump into Genesis 22, I'll show you, show you this, but as you're flipping there in your Bibles, here's, here's part of Abraham's story. Abraham was told by God that God was going to make him the father of a, of a great nation, that from Abraham was going to come uh, this nation. They would have land with boundaries. They would have the offspring like the stars in the sky. They would be blessed by God to bless the nations around them. It was the nation of God, a nation. Talk about doubling your life. If you could create out of your family your own nation, that would be something. Reminds me of how we kind of talk in America about George Washington. He's the father of our nation. And if you can, through Ancestry.com, trace your lineage to George Washington, that's pretty cool. But um, I don't have to be related to him to call him the father of my country. He has his influence that is multiplied to us today. And such is, is true of Abraham. Uh, Abraham was receiving a promise from God to him that you will father a great nation. And Abraham trusted God's promise. He, he said, okay, God, like, great, sign me up. I'll go where you want me. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll, 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 I'm in. And yet, decade after decade, year after year, Abraham grew older and older and older and older, and Sarah never had children. How many people know it's hard to father a nation if you don't have any offspring? And after a long, winding road and decades of growing older, Abraham and Sarah conceived a child when Abraham was about 100 years old. His wife, Sarah, was 90. Um, I'm not going to ask you how old you are, but I don't see too many people pushing 90 in this room. And so it's fair to ask the question, ladies, are you ready to have another child? Some of you went in the hospital at 36 years old that you were pregnant, and they wrote on every single one of your pieces of paper, this lady is high risk. Could you imagine Sarah, 90 years old? Sarah, when she conceived, she laughed. She thought it was a joke. Birth at 90, (laughs) that's ridiculous. And yet, while she delivered the boy, could you imagine how real the promise of God felt to her then, at 90, nursing her son Isaac, which, uh, it means laughter. Uh, Sarah laughed because it was a ridiculous premise. She called him Isaac because his name means, laughter has come to my home. And she named him that because she said, everyone who sees me is surely going to mock me and laugh at me. And I'm going to laugh with them. This kid's name is Laughter. Isaac grew up with a promise over his head. God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 21, the words are recorded just a couple of verses earlier, verse 12, that through Isaac you will have many offspring. So um, talk about a kid who was spoiled. The promised one, part of the great lineage, the great nation that God himself promised us. You can imagine uh, his brother Ishmael, Uh, fighting with him all the time. We know through history that's kind of true what happens. 
So Isaac grows up, probably the most doted over spoiled son in the whole course of human history, until one day God spoke again to Abraham out of uh, the silence and spoke to him. And what God said was the most confusing and difficult thing I think any one of us could understand, wrap our minds around, or even obey. I want you to turn with me to Genesis 22, verse 1, and we're going to read it together. Look at, what, look at what God says to him. After these things, God tested Abraham. Everybody say tested. It's a really important word. If you don't recognize that this is all set up in the context of a test, you will read this wrongly, and it will lead you to some wrong conclusions about the heart of God. After these things, God tested Abraham, said to him, Abraham. I, I, when I read the Bible, I'd like to read everything in the Bible. And so I see that. I see there's like an exclamation point. I wonder like how that exclamation point got there in the, script, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. And I, I imagine God like standing over like some Grand Canyon just shouting, Abraham! <laughs> That's how I read the Bible. <laughs> and he said, and I think it goes like this, I'm over here. <laughs> he, God said to him, take your son. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. We can imagine the look on Abraham's face What? You want me to do what? A couple questions, God. First, why? Second, why him? And third, since when have you ever been in a child's sacrifice? It's not like you. We have a bit of information that Abraham didn't have, as the narrator tells us, that God was just testing Abraham with this. How many know it's true that when God tests his people, he doesn't test you on insignificant things in your life. He tests you in matters of your heart that go straight to your top priorities. Like when God wants to make sure that you have, uh, he has your whole attention, he, he gets at the thing that really twists you the most. For Abraham, he says this, he says, take your son, your only son, the long-awaited son, the one that you love. The test that God put before Abraham wasn't to see if God could get all of Isaac's life. It was to see if God already had all of Abraham's life. True, true faith is always tested. Isaac was so dear to Abraham, but God wanted to make sure that Isaac wasn't an idol to Abraham, so he sent him to a mountain, Mount Moriah, which was a three days journey away from where Abraham was. He sent him to a worship service to see if Abraham worshipped God or if he worshipped his son. And that's what God is calling out in this dramatic command to Abraham. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. It's just so intense the way the narrative records it. And God says, show me you love me more than you love him. I'm going to stop there because parents, have you felt the pull to the dark side with your kids yet? 
Do you know what I mean by that? I don't mean like you had little cute kids when they were five and then they turned 15 and they turned into like aliens and you didn't even know them anymore and you like, your heart was turned against them. You're like, I'll just get these kids out of my house. I don't mean that. I mean the pull to the dark side in your heart where you loved this kid so much you would do anything for them. That's the dark side. The dark side when your child replaces the place that God should hold in your heart. Isn't it true that our kids can be become the things we worship rather than worshipers that we're supposed to be training. And our kids, they need us, and that feels good to us, and we like to be needed. They obey us, or we can make them obey us, and that, that feels good. We like to be in control. We worship the God that gives us control. Or they bear our name and our likeness on the football field, everybody, okay, let's stick close to home for the Jacobsons because no Jacobson kid's going to be out there on the football field and people being like, that's a Jacobson. Let's be honest. Uh, on the baseball field, right? Uh, he's out there swinging like, oh, that's a chip off the old block. Got it from his mama. <laughs> they bear our name and our image, and when they succeed, it makes us feel good because they make us look good. Ironically, the more we worship them, the more we feel good about ourselves. Child worship is seductive because it twists idolatry to its ultimate prideful end, that the thing that we worship is actually reflecting our own glory. It's a perversion of worship. We're always intended to worship God. When we worship God and put him first, to glorify God, but worshiping your kid is a sneaky way to acceptably worship yourself. And Abraham's test is actually about how much Abraham loves Abraham as much as it's about how much Abraham loves Isaac. And the ultimate question that God is asking of Abraham is really, Abraham, I know you love your son, but how much do you love me? So after three days of journeying on the shadow of Mount Moriah appears upon the distance, uh, look at me, or look with me at verse four, the third day. Are you still with me? Because I'm, I'm, I'm seriously coming for your heart today. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. It's kind of this ominous trip to Morador type of feeling that we have. Then Abraham said to his young men, I mean, the guy's 100 years old. Of course, he had servants helping him. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. There's no hesitation in Abraham. He tells the men that he will um, go worship The two of them will go, and he implies that actually the two of them will come back. I wonder what Abraham was thinking. I wonder how hard his parental heart beat in that moment as he left those servants who probably could have stopped him and he knew would have stopped him to take his son and go be obedient to the Lord. I I bet, I bet he was rehearsing the words that God spoke to him in Genesis 21, 12, that through Isaac you will have descendants, through Isaac you will have descendants, through Isaac you will have descendants, through Isaac you will have descendants. God said, God said that through Isaac we will have have descendants. God said it. The writer of Hebrews actually gives us a key internal thought to the thought process of Abraham in in this moment. And here's what Hebrews 11, 19 says, kind of as like a spoiler alert. Uh, the New Testament, reflecting back upon this, tells us a little bit of insight. It says, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
So Abraham was thinking that Isaac would be resurrected. That if he loved God so much that he would kill his one and only son, that God would raise his one and only son from the dead. And I don't know how you think about this story in our modern context today, but we have to acknowledge that's faith right there. To take God at his word, the unshakable promise that he will do what he said he will do and act as if he will do it. Abraham had never seen a resurrection, yet he believed God was capable of resurrection. So the two of them came to the place and we read in verse 6 that this happened. Read along with me. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. What a haunting question. Dad, we're missing something. Aren't we supposed to sacrifice an innocent lamb? Isn't that the whole gig? You got the wood, you got the fire, you got the knife, but you're missing the key ingredients. We are, in our context, I think, and especially in the moment of this story that we're in right now, so fixated on the situational irony. We know something about this that Isaac himself doesn't know. But if I could pull us out of the story for a moment and bring attention to the reason that Isaac asked the question in the first place, I think it speaks so much to the goal that our parenting should have. I think it's obvious that Isaac asks this question because he knew what was involved in worshiping God. Isaac knew that the way in that day that you showed God you loved him is that you sacrificed an animal on the altar, that blood would run down to pay for your sins, and it would cost you something precious. Abraham and Isaac were obviously in the habit of worshiping God together. Abraham had modeled for Isaac the spiritual disciplines of worship. And while the lesson comes to us at one of the most tense moments of the whole entire story, I don't want us to miss the powerful question that's embedded within it. Do our kids, do your kids, do my kids know how to worship God because of how we've led them? If in your mind uh, you can do this, I just want you right now to answer this question, yes or no. Have you modeled worship for your kids? Like if they go off to college, do they know the priority and the value of God because of your example in their life? Do they know what it even means to worship God because they've seen you and they've heard your instruction? It's so obvious. Isaac knew. Isaac knew. Verse 9. When they came to the place in which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, Abraham bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. For some of you right now, you're cringing. I just want to let you know it's going to be okay. This moment in the Bible, though, is one of those moments that if you drew a cartoon of it, it would make you laugh. 
Isaac was in his mid-teens. We think he was 13 years old, which means Abraham is actually about 113 years old. And from the pure physicality standpoint, I'm just curious, how many of you here think that Isaac possibly, maybe was strong enough to take on his old man? Just raise your hand if you think Isaac, a 13-year-old, could have given the 113-year-old a run for his money. Actually, I think, and I don't know who the oldest guy in the room is, we don't have time to figure it out, but if I got that guy and then a 13-year-old boy in this room and have them just do a lap around the track here, I'm pretty sure the 13-year-old would lap the oldest guy in the room, amen? 21 odds? Who wants to take that? We're not betting in church, I'm sorry. Of course, Isaac could have taken his dad. But it's incredibly profound why he doesn't. It's incredibly insightful for us and instructive for us. I think Abraham probably explained to Isaac what was going on. I think on his way up the mountain, there was a conversation that happened between Abraham and Isaac. Those words are ringing in Abraham's ears. Dad, where's the lamb? And he's given an answer, but I'm sure he talked to his son and said, you know, Isaac, I brought you out here on this three-day journey for a reason, and I, I don't know what you're going to think about this, but you know how, like, sometimes God talks to me? And God's always done the thing that he said he would do when he talks to me. You know how, like, God told me I would have you, and then he made me wait a long time, and miraculously you came? You know how like God told us to go to this one land which he showed us and that's what we've done? The other day God told me that I should take you with me on a journey to this mountain right here to a place that he'd show me and build an altar. But Isaac, God told me that you were the one that was supposed to go up on top. And I don't know how this ends, Isaac, but I've learned every single time that I obey God, he blesses me. I've learned every time that I do what he says, it turns out for my good, not my harm. I've learned that behind every command of the Lord is a promise of blessing. So Isaac, that's what we're doing. Which kind of explains why Abraham could bind up his 13-year-old son and get him on the altar. And I don't think we look at this story the right way when we just cursory read it so quickly. I think we actually have to see the faith of Abraham in this moment of putting his son on the altar, but also the faith of Isaac, because Isaac obviously doesn't fight him. And what we see here is that Abraham is obeying God, and Isaac is obeying Abraham. If that's not a goal for our parenting, I I don't know what is. That our kids would see us obeying God and they would in turn obey us. Let's bring some resolution to the story before you think this is crazy. Verse 10. Are you all still with me? Did I lose you at the child sacrifice part? Some of you I did. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But, and you got to say it with me. It's like hallelujah, but. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Almost like, like, whoa, 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 okay, okay, okay. 
Abraham said, here I am. The angel said from heaven, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. The test was passed. We can all kind of like breathe out and relax. God saw Abraham's heart and God provided the sacrifice all along that Abraham believed that God would provide. The story goes on. If we had time to keep going, it would show us how God, God put a, 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 an animal in the bushes that was trapped there for Abraham to take. It was an acceptable sacrifice. And Abraham and Isaac worshiped God that way. And they sacrificed the animal. But that day, Isaac learned something that was incredibly powerful. You probably never forget. It's something critical for each one of our children to see in us. Simply this, as Abraham raised his hand and Isaac looked at the blade, he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that his dad's number one priority was not him, but God. I can't help but see Isaac's cooperation as the fruit of Abraham having multiplied his love for God into Isaac's life. That Isaac would love God so much that he too would endure whatever God brought his way. Here's the principle for us. I think if we just reflect on this story, I got three principles that we can pull out of uh, this kind of uh, dystopian thought, this this weird thought from uh, what God tested Abraham in that really apply to our hearts as we think about parenting our kids. First thing I want you to do, write this down. First, First principle we see here is simply this, is that we multiply, we multiply, write this down, we multiply our first priorities. We multiply our first priorities. Find it interesting that God's word records this test between a father and his 13-year-old son. Because I find it to be a truism in life that you can tell what's important to a dad based on what's important to his 13-year-old son. Have you run into this before? If the kid is a Ford guy, it's probably because the dad is a Ford guy. And um, if the kid likes a certain baseball team, it's probably because the dad brainwashed him into liking the Cubs. No other reason to like the Cubs these days, except for brainwashing. And if a 13-year-old is interested in worshiping God, chances are that's because he's seen his father worshiping God too. As parents, whatever is our first priority in life always gets multiplied into the lives of our kids. Isn't it frustratingly true that our kids see us at our best and our worst? I mean, they know when we're putting on a front and when we're legit. As pastor, as a pastor, this really haunts me, and as one of my goals, and you can pray for me, is that I might live consistently at home the same way I live consistently in the community of the church. I desperately don't want to live in a way where my kids look at me and they fail to see the need for grace that I have, and it would cause them to turn away from God and the church. Because my kids know me at my best, and my kids know me at my worst. And honestly, we all have this struggle. That's not just a pastor struggle. This is a you struggle, too. Because your kids come here, and they see you worshiping here at church, or giving a, a testimony, or praying, or hosting a small group, or leading a Bible study. And, and at the same time, they, they know your life. They see you outside these walls. They know what you get really, really excited about. Like, they know that some of us care more about the fact that Cody Parkey didn't get fired than we care about getting fired up for God. They see how we wax and buff our cars 
or how you put Scotch guard on your sofa after they sit on it. And after uh, they look around, they see you looking at the clock, waiting it for it to be a certain time of the day so the wine bottle can come out. They see your priorities. They know you. They know what you wake up early for and what you stay up late for. If you never wake up early for God, you never stay up late for God, you never brave the icy weather for God. This is not for you. This is for the people who hear my voice later who slept in and they're like, I'll just hear it online. This is for you. You all pass this test. But we have to ask ourselves, what then am I multiplying in my life of my kids? Really? Isaac, on that mountain, as he looked up, had no question that God was the first priority of his father's life. And I want to hear from Isaac someday in heaven how life-changing this moment was for him. Surely this moment was replayed in his mind time and time and time again. He told this moment to his sons, to Jacob and Esau. He probably, this, this, this got, we know this got told to Jacob's sons and their kids and eventually recorded into scripture so that we could benefit from the story as well. But this was a moment replayed in his mind, an indelible image of his father's extreme example of faith. What was Abraham's legacy? I mean, his wealth is gone, homes are gone. But his enduring legacy that has rippled throughout all the generations is this, is that he was a man of faith. He trusted God and took him at his word. Abraham listened to God and obeyed him, and when he messed up, which he often did, he submitted to God's correction and walked by faith. Listen, multiplying your first priorities, it doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean you have to be spiritually perfect. It just means you have to be spiritually real. In your homes, you don't have to be a perfect person. Amen? You just have to be spiritually real. Which, which just ask the question, like, in your home, is there a pulse of spirituality? Like, is there a culture and an atmosphere of grace and abiding love and forgiveness and conversations about what the Lord is doing? Is there a sense of forbearing with one another and forgiveness? Is there, uh, in your home, a, a sense of a positive attitude towards God's church that shows your kids that you might not be perfect, but you actually are spiritually alive? Because you can be spiritually real in the midst of real failure. How you repent says more to your kids about how you act blessed. And Isaac certainly saw his father's flaws, and we multiply our first priorities. And this line of application really brings us to another major principle of family math. This is the second thing I want to draw to your attention this morning is that we multiply our first priorities. So what matters to you is going to matter to your kids, but, but check this out. It's going to matter to your kids' kids and your kids' kids' kids and your kids' 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 kids, kids too. Because here's number two. We multiply generationally. We multiply generationally. For generations that would follow Abraham miraculously through his son Isaac, it actually came to pass that through Jacob and his sons, uh, there was a nation that was called Israel. And Abraham is cited as that father. Father Abraham. Even though he only fathered one son in the lineage of Israel, but we call him the patriarch of Israel. All the way down to the point that, that Matthew, in chapter 1, verse 1 of the New Testament, uh, Matthew says the generations from Jesus to David to Abraham. He, he so points the fact that Jesus came out of the line of Father Abraham. That's because faith multiplies across generations. 
This is how it is when faith is passed down God's way. It has a ripple effect through the, the, the generations that follow after you. And I think today many of us want to build great families. Like we want that, don't we? But some of us, we really lack understanding of our roots back to our ancestry. We pay websites to tell us where we came from. I'm afraid in our culture, we have accidentally lost the art of passing down from generation to generation to generation the stories of our family's faith. And in that, I think we've also lost the God-sized scope of what parenting takes. Listen, parenting is not 18 years and then you're done. Parenting is not even a lifetime activity. It endures through all generations. I know, I know. We're all sitting there like, crap. Which is like a swear word from the stage. I'm sorry if that offended you. Shoot. Because we feel, we feel what we're doing to our kids, don't we? We just feel this weight put upon us that how, if this is what gets multiplied generationally, then God, I need your help. Like, I, I need more than a miracle of having a kid at 100 years old. I need, I need everything in my heart and my life to be new. God desires our impact from this life here on earth to ripple into the future and generation after generation after generation would passionately follow Christ into eternity. That's the mission of multiplication. That's the mission of God and families is that you might be but one in the chain of your family that just points back to God's goodness. And I'm here not today not to tell you a twisted story out of the Old Testament or to heap shame and guilt that you don't have the right priorities and that what you're doing today is going to screw up your family. I'm here today to tell you you can do it. I'm here today by God's grace to tell you this is our plan A from God. This is what he wants from us. As such, I think this is why God is so concerned with generational sin. Because the priorities we live today have the ability to frame the future of our families. How many know that if you live for alcohol today, you are paying forward into the future? A um, sickness upon those, we know this statistically, in a future generation who will have dependence upon alcohol until someone in your family takes the courageous step to stand up and say that's enough. To be released from that chain. Likewise, if, if your kids are your idol, if your kids are the things that you live for, if your first priority is your kids and not your God, I just ask you to reflect upon the state of our culture today. Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder that a whole generation will be raised that might believe they are entitled, ought not work for anything, are special and unique just like everyone else? that their careers ought to provide them fulfillment and enjoyment and purpose, and that coffee should be simultaneously instant and gourmet. Right? Like, that's what happens when your kids are your first priority. You, you build in this lie into your families that all that matters is you. What we value most impacts the next generation the most. So the good news today is that while we can't guarantee that every child will grow up in total love and faith in Christ, nor can we individually change the culture of our society or the world around us, every Christian parent can shape. You can do it. You can, you can do this. You can shape the trajectory of your family and your kid's family. 
And I know this um, firsthand from the story of my own family. It goes back starting, as far as we know, over 150 years ago. Six generations ago in my family, there was a man from Sweden. He was a forge worker. You know what a forge worker is? That's OG steel mill guy, okay? It's like original gangster. He lived in Sweden. His name was Johan Alfred Carlson. As best as I understand, he's my um, grandfather's great-grandfather. I know much about him from my family, though I've never met the man, never had a chance to. One thing I know from him, from his records of his life and from what his family has written down and from what my grandfather and my mom have told to me is that we know what he prayed for. Isn't that crazy? I've got a prayer in my family that goes back beyond the Mormon faith's existence. It's kind of nuts. He prayed that God would reach into his family of his kids and into his kids' kids' family. And he prayed for his kids' 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 family. He had a prayer that he asked. He said, God, would you show them the beauty of the gospel and would you call them to be active servants of you doing the work of ministry, preaching and building your kingdom. Johann Alfred Carlson moved to Indiana Harbor in 1901. His family had already been here. They got jobs in town doing things that would bore you. But he, he moved his whole life here as an older man, and he moved to East Chicago. Uh, finding that there was no community, no organized church for Scandinavians, what a terrible thought that there would be no church for Scandinavians, uh, he took it upon himself with some of his other friends to uh, borrow equipment and, and, and to reclaim lumber, and he built using uh, you know, you know, second-hand bricks that were no longer needed. He built a, a church in East Chicago, Indiana. Two years ago, uh, I, used my, I called up my grandpa, and I had him uh, give me directions to the church, which is crazy ironic because my grandpa can't find his way around his town and it's one street. But he remembered the exact way for me to navigate East Chicago to find the Swedish church. And actually, I, I snapped a picture of it. This is the church that Johann Alfred Carlson built. Um, right there, not much to it, just a humble church. 1906, this thing was built. And it was in that space right there that Johann Alfred Carlson saw God answer his prayers throughout generations. Because one of his own family members became the first pastor of this church. It's actually a pastorate that nobody would actually want. Everybody in the church was related to one another and they all fought all the time. It was terrible. It was my family. (laughs) And from this church right here, men and women would grow up to hear the gospel and go out into the world and God answered his prayer And generation after generation, there had been a preacher in every successive, sometimes more than one in every successive generation, until one date, I'll give you the date, May 12th, 1945, not like anyone's counting, when an unknown preacher by the name of Billy Graham had a crusade in uh, a school in Indiana Harbor. And my 16-year-old grandfather went to be an usher that day, and Billy Graham preached the gospel, and it cut to my grandfather's heart. And in that day, um, something stirred in my grandfather that he too might uh, do the work of God in preaching the gospel in ministry. My grandfather went and got trained, and he eventually started working for the same organization that Billy Graham worked at. The two became friends. A couple years ago, I was in my grandfather's basement, and I noticed this picture of my grandfather, it's him on the top left, and uh, Billy Graham and his wife there. 
and um, I don't put this up here to like name drop. I have a reason for this. is because to this day, if you talk to my grandfather about Billy Graham, he will have this fondness in his recollection to say, well, Billy Graham is my spiritual father. Friends, if you don't have kids, or if you're a single person today, I want you to know this, that multiplying your life isn't just about having your own offspring. It's about bringing the good news of faith to bear out in other people's lives too, that you might become a spiritual father. Multiplying your life through the sharing of the gospel, the changing of courses of other people's futures. And I'm so grateful for a man like Billy Graham who would preach uh, on a whim to a 16-year-old, and this is obviously much later in life, uh, to my grandfather. And my grandfather, you could take that down, my grandfather... um, continued to pray the prayer of Johann Alfred Carlson, that God would have a preacher in every generation of our family. And my mom is here. I think I saw her back here. My mom, you can wave higher, mom. You don't have to be so ashamed. She's here to make sure that I'm not making anything up. Um, My mom carried on this prayer as well, didn't you? For years before I was born, which is crazy. And my mom never told me. She never told me, like, I was going to be a car guy. My mom was like, you can't do that. That's the one thing you can't do. But I remember where I was in 2003 when God called me to, with my life, pursue preaching his word. I was sitting in a green Astro van. It was so ugly. I was embarrassed by it. I had to drive it to my high school. I got in there early. I was in the parking spot. I remember exactly what I was looking at. I was hearing on the radio a guy named Joe Stoll who was preaching. And the spirit hit my heart. And said to me, he's not doing anything you can't do. He's just taking the Bible, explaining it in today's terms. Don't you want to do that with your life? And I kid you not, I had ambitions as a 16-year-old to, to go be a lawyer, to go make a lot of money. And I, I, by the grace of God, watched some of you guys kill it in business and, and be you know, top salesmen in the country and in your departments. And I'm like, glad for you. There's nothing inside of me that desires that. I... I My dad's a car guy. I have nothing in me that wants to work with cars. I hate cars. They're the worst things in the world. They're worse than cats. Cats and cars. I just hate those things. We're not talking to look for a fight here. I'm just just trying to tell you that where did that come from, that calling on my life? It certainly didn't come from my own goodness. It certainly didn't come from my pedigree. It came, here's where it came from, from the prayers six generations ago. How crazy is it that here you are today in 2019, 113 years, that's a number from Abraham's life, 113 years later after my great, great, great grandfather built a church in Northwest Indiana, and praying that in the generations of his family that people will be encouraged by the gospel for the preaching of the words that would come from the mouth of God's servants that would be his descendants. And here you are experiencing the fulfillment of that prayer. So, so this isn't about me. All this is is to say your future generations hang in the balance of how you live your life and what you pray for. So let me ask you, when you tuck your kids into bed at night, do you pray for them to have a good day at school tomorrow? Or do you pray big prayers over their lives? Do you pray prayers that are going to outlast you? Do you pray prayers that are going to affect the world in 2,119, 2,219, 2,319? 
We think too small. We dream too small. And we pray too small. God's design has always been that through all generations, he might call families to him. 